Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship this morning. We continue our sermon series from the books of Samuel. Today we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We may look at a, another passage in Samuel from time to time, but chapter 11 and 12 will be our focal point. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It was that time of the year. After the agricultural chores had been taken care of, that is, the farming was finished. And before the terrible heat of the summer, the army of Israel was laying siege to the capital of Ammon, Reboth. The kingdom had grown to the place where David was now delegating to Joab, the actual maneuvering and management of the troops on the field. He himself would kind of hang back from the scene of battle until the victory was imminent. Now, David didn't mind showing up in time to actually siege the city to carry the flag and show that he's the one that actually captured the place. But while the dirty, bloody work was going on, David had reached a point where he himself had just soon stayed back while that was done. It was the golden years for Israel. She was united. She was full of riches. David was now king and the hearts and the minds of the people. The country was prospering. And for some reason, now David, in the midst of prosperity and victory, is even more susceptible to temptation. Adventurer Harry Pigeon circled the globe in a small sailboat. During an interview one time, he asked the interviewer, do you know what's the most dangerous time when you're sailing alone? Oh, I suppose it's the, the terrible storms in a little boat like that. No, it's not the storms. Well, maybe it's the rocks when you try to hug the coastline. Surely it's the rocks. No, it's not the rocks or the storms. Rather, it's the calm weather that is the most dangerous time when someone is sailing alone. In a gale, a man will hold fast to something, fearful that he might fall over and be lost at sea. But when there's a smooth breeze and fair weather... He might walk about on the boat unaware and just a little tip or roll of the boat and over he goes lost forever. That's what's happening to David here. It's what happens to us when the storms of life are raging, we will hold on to God. When the weather is fair, when things are calm, well, we forget we need to grasp God. And so, like David, we walk around self-confident as David was strolling in our story today, the rooftop of the palace. Lust. Lust was a sin that set the whole chain of events into motion. It was a cool late afternoon. David had a habit at this time, at the heat of the day, to go and take a nap on the rooftop. He was walking around after his nap on that flat rooftop, catching a cool breeze. He was scanning the rooftops, looking like a king so proud of his kingdom. 
There's an old lady over there carrying a water jar on her head. And there's the children in the street playing their wedding game. And he's kind of doing a survey of the city. And he looks, and there is a beautiful woman named Bathsheba who is bathing. And she was a ten. David liked what he saw, and so he looked some more. She was J-Lo and Kate Middleton and Scarlett Johansson all woven into one in the eyesight of the king. David was a man of action with a little bit of time on his hands, a warrior who now takes naps in the afternoon. He had a need for some excitement, some adventure, some new interest. It could have ended as a moment of the mind, but David had gone from being a humble shepherd boy whose task was to carry the roasted grain, the cheese, and the bread to his brothers who were at war for the king, to being now who's a king to used to getting everything that his heart desired. So David inquired as to her identity. Off limits was the reply. Look at verse 3. So David sent. I want you to notice that verb sent. David does a lot of sending in this story. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, the very response should have stopped David cold. She is someone's daughter. She is another man's wife. It should have been the end. She has commitments and relationships. She's not available, David. But David took her, the text says. Notice verse 4. And David's second time, it happens over and over again in this story, David sent messengers, and David took her. David sins, 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 and David takes. Do you remember way back, we won't look at it for time's sake in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when the people wanted to be like all the other nations and they wanted a king. Do you remember for a moment what the prophet Samuel said to them? If you don't let God be your king and if you have a human king, king will take, take, take. He will take your sons and put them to the war. He will take your daughters. He will take your grain. He will take your flocks. Samuel says, if you get a king, kings do one thing. They take, take, take. He hadn't forgotten his verb. Now the king, after God's own heart, begins to take. Some time passes between verse 4 and verse 5. However much time it would take for a woman of antiquity to know that she was expecting. For a moment, David had supposed that he had gotten off scot-free. Can you imagine how his heart jumped when in verse 5, and the woman conceived and she sent. Now David has sent and sent, and now Bathsheba sins and told David, I am with child. 
I want you to notice some things about this story. First of all, your sin often finds you out. Your sin often finds you out. Alan Adams was on a Sunday afternoon at a Pittsburgh Steelers game against the Baltimore Ravens in Three Rivers Stadium. They chose three in attendance of the ball game to come out at halftime and try to kick a field goal. And if you kick the field goal, you got round trip tickets on airlines, or you could choose dinner in a very high restaurant. It, it was up to you. But Alan Adams was so excited when they called his name. But there was somebody else in attendance at the game that day. It was a, a police sergeant, and Alan Adams, that name sounds familiar, Alan Adams. Where do I know that name from, Alan Adams? He called the office, and sure enough, there was a warrant out for the arrest for Alan Adams for assault and battery. And so when Alan Adams not only missed the field goal, when he came off the field, the sergeant, who was also attending the NFL game, was waiting to arrest Alan Adams. David does what we all do. He looks first for a shortcut and then a cover-up to hide his sins. He sends message to his general, Joab, and says, I want you to bring Uriah back to me. Look at verse 6. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. Three times, one verse, sent, sent, sent. I'm the king. I'll do whatever I want. I will send you here and you there. Send, send, send. Bring Uriah home is a message that David sends to Joab. I imagine that mock interview and how that went. David acted to Uriah as if he were really interested in the war against the Ammonites. Well, how are things with Joab? Pretending to be taking notes mentally or physically. And how are things with the other men? And where are we? are we? Are we about to take the city? H how's it going? Give me the report. I've called because you know. Give me the report. And when he had finished feigning an interview with Uriah the Hittite, he said, now Uriah, you need to go home and be with your wife. You just go home and relax and I'll send you back to the, to the battle lines in a bit, but I just want you to go home for now. In this way, of course, you see that the paternity could be attributed to Uriah and not to David if he went home and was with his wife Bathsheba. The next morning, thinking that all has been taken care of and all is covered up, David goes out of the palace and notices that Uriah has slept right there on the floor at the door of the king. Now, why would you do something like that, Uriah? I told you, you could go home, be with your family, be with your wife. Oh, far be it for me to do a thing like that, David. Don't you realize the ark, that is God, isn't at home? God is out on the battlefield. Don't you realize that Joab's out sleeping in a tent? Don't you know that all my buddies and all my friends, they're not at home? How could I ever go at home and be with my wife? I, as God lives, I won't do such a thing. Uriah was everything that David was not. 
David cared less about the war or the troops. David hadn't calculated that he was dealing with a man of character, a man of principle, a man with a conscience. Well, I, I get that, David said. I understand that. And so David got Uriah intoxicated, thinking if I get my warrior drunk, then he will lose his scruples, and then he'll go home. It'll be okay. He gets Uriah drunk. David, I'm sure, feigning to drink as much. And even in a drunken stupor, Uriah has more scruples than the king, and Uriah does not go home. David is now desperate as a king, and he writes a note. Unbeknownst to Uriah, David is writing Uriah's death warrant. He writes to Joab, I want you to put Uriah in the heat of battle where the valiant men are. And then at just the right moment, I want you to pull back the men and leave Uriah to fend for himself. And if he dies in battle, we'll understand at the palace. Signs it, seals it, hands it to Uriah. And Uriah carries forth his own death warrant. Look at verse 26. Now, when you, the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. The word came back that, in fact, now David's plan has been successful. Uriah has fallen as instructed. Now, the wife of Uriah... Our narrator, are you noticing the subtle language? Our narrator plays a trick on David. Uriah is dead, but the narrator refuses to say Bathsheba's name. The narrator always calls her the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Just call her Bathsheba, easy enough, right? <laughs> No, the editor is making a point against the king. It's not Bathsheba. It is the wife of Uriah. The story is recorded in such a way that David can make no mistake, and we can make no mistake in knowing to whom Bathsheba had relationship. Bathsheba, after the funeral, the proper days of mourning for a husband, marries David and now the coast is clear, right? Verse 27, the end. Well, look at 27. Oh, when the time of mourning was over, David, what did David do? Sent. Uh, there was another one. He sent the letter to Joab, and now he sent and brought Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Lust had become adultery, and adultery had now turned into murder. And while David had covered it up in the eyes of everybody else, God knew the difference. 
Second thing I want you to see in this story is this. Sin is when we do what we want to do. Sin happens when we do what we want to do. I was sharing the gospel with a, a seven-year-old one time, and I always ask children to tell me what sin is. All of them can say, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Okay, what is a sin? And the seven-year-old theologian gave me the best definition that exceeds that of Augustine, Lutheran, or Cal Calvin when she said, sin is when we do what we want to do and not what God wants us to do. Sin happens when you and I ignore the boundaries and the rules and the commands of God, and we do what we want to do. A lot of time had passed now, and the gossips of the palace had silenced their tongues. A few cynics were complaining, I told you, hon, nothing was going to happen to the king. He would get away. It always happens this way. Nobody even knows. I watched. I saw. I did the timing. I can see how, what's happening here. But not a word, not an official word. No, after all, he was the king. David took like a king. And David sent, 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 sent. But notice chapter 12. Then the Lord sent. The subject of the verb sent has now changed. Before it was David who was doing all the sending. But now that David has sent, sent, sent three times in one verse and more than a half dozen times in the story, now we have a new actor on the stage. The new actor's name happens to be Yahweh or God, and God sends. I want you to notice. The Lord sent Nathan to David and came to him, and he said, God sends Nathan. Nathan approaches the king boldly and tells him a story. Now, king, let me tell you a story. There was a city that had two men in the city, and one of the men was rich, and he had flocks and herds and flocks and herds. He had so many animals. He had an enormous ranch. And there was another man that only had one little ewe lamb, and while well, the lamb, it ate his bread. It drank out of his cup. It slept in the bed with him. It came to the table with him. This little lamb was like a daughter to him. And the rich man had a visitor come to town and, well, instead of killing one of his and cooking and preparing one of his many lambs from his enormous myriad of flocks, he goes and he takes the little daughter lamb of the poor man and he slaughters that lamb and he and his friend dine on the roasted daughter of the poor man, the little lamb of the man. David can't even let Nathan finish the story. Well, that man ought to die, David says. And he should die, but I'll tell you this, he's going to repay fourfold the lamb that he took to the poor man. He's deserving of death. I can't stand that man. And Nathan says the most prophetic words ever uttered in the Old Testament. He says, David you are 
the man. The story is about you. Did I not anoint you king over Israel? Did I not give you Saul's throne? Did I not give you all of Saul's wives? How many wives did David have? Did I not give you everything that you ever desired as king? Did I not? Look at verse 7 of chapter 12. Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it was I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite, and you have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. The soldiers didn't kill Uriah. David, you did. Now, I want you to notice, not only will the narrator not call her Bathsheba, it's not that God doesn't know her name. God is well acquainted with her name God calls her likewise the wife of Uriah, his wife, David. David, you are the man. You are the one. Because of this, David, evil will rise up against your house, and even before your own eyes, your wives will be violated by others, and the violence will never leave your household, David. And David says to Nathan, I have sinned against God. And Nathan says, yes, you have, David, but God will take this sin away from you. You will be forgiven, and you will not die. You know the rest of the story. The sin did devastate David's family. The child died before we have Solomon from Bathsheba who becomes David's replacement. God does bless them later. But for the moment this child dies, his daughter Tamar is raped by her brother Amnon and Absalom murders Amnon and there's a whole sequence of suffering. The third thing I want you to see is this. Sin leads to suffering. Devastation. We think for a moment in our minds that we can somehow have the pleasure without the pain and God's word says, no, David, your sin has caused and will cause much suffering. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. Sin leads to separation. David feels the separation from God, and the song read by earlier in the, in the service tells us, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a sed, steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. He feels the absence of God. God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. He feels withdrawal of the Almighty, as James read the text to us. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. 
Wash me, O God, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear the joy of thy gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. God, blot out, cleanse, forget. Don't take your spirit from me. Don't take your presence from me. I want to rejoice in fellowship with you again. The small house was simple but adequate. Consisted of a large room on a dusty street at the edge of the village. Its red tiled roof was just like all the other houses outside of the the village. It was a comfortable home, and Maria and her daughter Christina lived there together alone. Christina's father, Maria's husband, had died about the time that Christina was born. They had decorated as best they could. There was a pallet on one side. It was just one room. A pallet on the other side, and a little wash basin there in the middle. Maria refused to remarry. She was a little bit stubborn. She said she could do it herself, and she did. That was 15 years ago. Her job as a housekeeper didn't pay a lot, but it was steady, and now Christina was old enough to get a little job and help as well. Some say Christina got her independence from her mother. I don't know. But she recalled at the traditional idea of marrying at a young age and raising a family. And while she could have had her pick of husbands, her brown eyes and olive skin, and the way she cast her head back when she laughed had made many suitors come to her home. But she always said, no, no, no. She wondered what it would be like to live in Rio de Janeiro, to be in the big city. She had that rare magic that few women have that makes every man feel like a king. She so often spoke of going to the city. Her mother tried to tell her, it's the city's cruel. They don't know you there, Christina. And what would you do for a job? The problem was Maria knew exactly what Christina would have to do for a job she went to Rio de Janeiro. That's why her heart sank the, the morning that she awakened and realized Christina's pallet was empty and it looked like she'd packed her things and left. Her daughter was gone. She knew what she had to do immediately. She gathered all the money that she possibly could, which wasn't much, and she headed towards the bus station. But before she got to the bus station, she went into a little drugstore, and she went to the photo booth, and she took all the little black and white pictures her money could afford, saving just enough bus fare there and back and for enough for a morsel of bread to eat along the way. She went to Rio de Janeiro, and she went to everywhere that a warm of the night might be. She went into bars, she went into cheap hotels, and everywhere she went, she took one of those little black and white pictures, and she scribbled a note, and she put it in a bathroom mirror here. She put it in a lobby bulletin board there, and she covered as much of the bad part of the city as she possibly could. And then when the photos had run out, along with her money, she headed back home with little hope. How many times Christina had thought she would trade those countless beds back for a little pallet in her one-room home. But now that life in the village seemed years away, and it seemed as if she could never get back to that. 
And so weeks had passed, and one day she was descending the stairs, and a familiar figure caught her eye, and she saw in the corner of a mirror of a lobby of a cheap hotel her mother's face on one of the little black and white pictures. Startled, moved, she went over and she picked it up and she flipped it over and she read, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Come home. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Come home. And she did. Oh, God. Temptation is a process of leading us away from you, your commandments, and your will. It is indeed, as my seven-year-old theologian told me, when we do things our way instead of God's way. Maybe there's some watching by way of television or some within this great house of worship that this would be the day for them to come and receive the grace of God. Realizing that we cannot change yesterday, we can only form and fashion tomorrow. Maybe there are others today, oh God, who need to be a part of a church that preaches the whole gospel, a gospel of sin, the gospel of grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.